Welcome to the Father Effect Podcast. Stories about the lifelong impact fathers have on men, women, and families. Here's your host, John Finch. Hello, hello. Thanks for joining me for the Father Effect Podcast. Brought to you by the Father Effect Movie. You can find out more about the movie and me at thefathereffect.com. I'm your host, John Finch, and today I will be joined by Jim the Rookie Morris. I'm really excited about this interview. Jim is an author and speaker and the inspiration for the Disney movie called The Rookie with Dennis Quake. Jim shares the story about how the movie came about through a connection of an old minor league roommate and a very interesting meeting with Disney's Michael Eisner. He talks candidly about his difficult relationship with his father, the close relationship he has with Dennis Quaid, and the trials and tribulations he's been through in the 20 years since the movie was released. It's a fascinating story, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. By the way, if you want to reach me, I'm at The Father Effect on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you're brand new to the show, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Now here's my interview with Jim the Rookie Morris. Hey, Jim, thanks for joining me today, brother. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Dude, so let's jump in, man. Tell me a little bit about how you grew up. I grew up as a military brat, north, south, east, west. We lived on both coasts. My dad served on submarines. And so anywhere with a port is where we lived. And baseball, for me, became a way of life because I was always a new kid. I was always on the move. We were three or four different schools a year. And so sports was the one way I could fit in. And that's what I did. And that's who I was early in my life. My dad had this saying, children are to be seen and not heard. And so I didn't talk as a kid ever. But on a sports field, I could be the kid I was supposed to be, if only for a little while at a time. And so sports became big for me. And I never competed against other people. I competed against myself to see how good I could become. So, you know, it's interesting you say that little kids are to be seen and not heard. Cause I remember my dad said the same thing growing up till I was 11 when I lost him. And it's like, you think about that for a minute, where in the heck did that come from? I mean, who's, who says that, right? It just, it makes no sense. You're telling your kid to never say, never speak up, never say anything. It just, it baffles me. It, it baffled me too for a long time. And then as I realized, as I got older, that my dad demanded strict discipline out of me, didn't demand it out of my little brother. He was the wanted child. And he didn't do it in the military, which is why we had to transfer all the time. But for me, he demanded discipline. And so he would go, children to be seen and not heard, children to be seen and not heard. And then he would turn around and go, I ask you a question. I'm like, well, now I can talk. Okay. And so it was a rough childhood growing up. Yeah. When you're cursed at and screamed at, yelled at and hit and told, we didn't even want you. That makes a big impact on you. So really your way of, of almost proving your worth and, and escaping that was between the white lines of let me go perform and let me just, it's almost a peace, right? You can go perform and, and be at peace to a certain degree because knowing once you came off that ball field, it's a whole different ball game, right? Absolutely, man. If only for two hours at a time, uh, I got to be the kid I was supposed to be. And I got to have friends and I got to talk and I got to laugh and giggle and have fun and compete. And so competition has always driven me. I look back at those times now and go, that's part of what made me who I am. And our journey is important in this life. And our experiences that we carry with it is going to determine who we become. And so I had some great teachers, whether it was positive or negative, And I learned to do the opposite. So with your father, kind of, you said your brother, was he an older brother or younger brother? He was a younger brother. My parents had to get married because of me. And so out of my mom's earshot one day, he's holding my brother and he goes, we didn't want you. This is what we wanted. And you're just like, wow. And can you get stomped down any further than that? We didn't even want you. And that's, that's rough. And a lot of kids have that today. And I wish that the dads would step up to the plate and be dads and quit being their kids' buddies and start tuning in instead of tuning out. So was there in that, that relationship with your father, obviously there probably some anger towards him because of just the, what he did to you and what he spoke into your life, the negative, all the mess. 
was there a part of you in performing on the on the baseball field was it well maybe if i do well enough on the baseball field he'll at some point say he loves me or he's proud of me i think there was one point in time where i thought that and then it was a game in which i struck out 17 people i hit three home runs and i struck out the last time and after the game, all he could talk to me about was the strikeout and how I would never make it anywhere. And I couldn't even get into college because my grades suck and I'm not a good enough athlete and I can't compete under pressure and just always pushing down and not making you feel worthy of anything. And so really as a young man, at least up to some point, you were just, you were really just dying to get his affirmation to, to be told you have what it takes or you're a good son. I mean, that would have, that would have spoken crazy life into your life right oh volumes and but here's the deal i did that even into my 20s and 30s if i just do this maybe he'll approve if i just do that maybe he'll approve and i'll tell you how bad it got i went after growing up with him i went and married a woman who was the female version of my dad who was totally unavailable and i thought if i could fix her then everything will be cool. And we're not gonna fix anybody. And it's just, that is not a good place to go. You need to be with people who are going to lift you up and hold you up to the Holy Spirit. And we just, I never had that. And so for the first part of my life, I lived trying to gain something from him that would be positive and there never was anything. Do you think in, in seeking out that relationship, was it subconscious or was it, okay, I want to try to fix this person who's just like my dad. I couldn't fix my dad, but I'm going to try to fix this. Person. Was it subconscious or do you think, or was it just like, Hey, I'm attracted to her. Let's do this. I think it's a little bit of both. I think part of you see something in them and then the more you learn about them, you're like, wow, they resemble my father quite a bit. And yeah, if I can fix them, and then I can fix a relationship with him and it doesn't work that way. You know, and many people that we interviewed for the father effect movie, there's this idea, especially the women that, you know, a woman who grows up in an abusive relationship, watching her mom and dad, watching her dad abuse her mom, she will seek out that same type of man because it becomes their normal, right? right. It is, as crazy as that sounds, it becomes their normal. So they kind of just slide into it because it's what they're used to. Do you, you think that's maybe what happened there too? Absolutely. Because we, we think we don't deserve any better. And so if we just settle, I don't want to settle, man. I want to thrive. Jesus gave us a lot to live for. And why aren't we living that every day? And it took me a long time to come to that realization. And I wouldn't trade it for anything now because my kids know that been remarried for almost 20 years. We've raised five kids together, happy as I can be. And it's some of the best time of my life is, is now. <laughs> when I'm losing all my athletic ability, that's when everything else comes up and goes, hey, you got this. So here we go. So let me ask you as it relates to the way you saw your father, because I hear this quite often, especially with a military style dad. You know, the guy who has the military talent military style dad who's the disciplinarian the tends to be angry you know abusive in certain situations and we see that as our earthly father and a lot of times we take that same thing and we think god is that way so if it's i could never get the affirmation from my father i need to do this that or the other performance-based love if i just play well enough he'll say he loves me or he's proud of me and then so all of a sudden then you think well god's the same way is that something that played out in your life? Yeah, but in a different way. Because early in my life, when churches were religious, you would get beaten down all week by your dad. And, and then you would go to church and get told all the ways in which God was angry at you and you could never redeem yourself. To nowadays, non-denominational and people, grace and love and forgiveness and all that makes a lot more sense to me in the message than all that other stuff. We're going to burn the church down with you in it. And I just don't get that anymore. And those places, I think people go, well, our churches are dying. Uh, you think maybe we need to change the message a little bit and get out there and go, 
God is love. Amen, dude. The message of grace, I think, is is so lost in today's environment, especially with social media, because it's so easy for trolls and hate to get just spewed. It's like, oh my gosh, man, we we are lucky that we serve a grace giving God because I know I need it every day because I'm messing up and all the things I screw up, right? Absolutely. And you know, that's one of the things I love is that he doesn't, he doesn't ever count us out because he knows what's going to happen. And so I, I, I take a lot of warmth in that. And, you know, my dad passed away a few years ago and I didn't go to the funeral. My uncle called me. I was on the road traveling and speaking. Shauna was with me. And he said, we're waiting for the funeral till you get home. And I said, don't wait. I said, I'm not going to celebrate someone who did to me what he did. I said, I love him. I forgive him, but I'm not going to celebrate his life. And that just, that was a decision I made personally. I don't think all people should do that, but you know what? I, he tortured me and I was not going to celebrate that. I saw an interview or a little uh, piece on kind of the story of the movie, which we'll talk about here in a minute, but it, it interviewed your mom. Mom, your mom just seems like the sweetest lady in the world. Kind of like my mom. <laughs> kinda, and, and I guess, was it, and I'll admit it, I, I'm not ashamed. I was the biggest mama's boy. Growing up without a dad, I was the youngest and got, I was at home for the longest period of time with my mom. What was your mom like? Well, she was married to him, not very livable. And the happiest times I had as a child was the time that she was the happiest. And that was when he was out to sea because that's when there was the least pressure. And that's when she became my fan. And she wanted to cheer me on at games and take me to see other teams play so I could watch my friends. And that's when there was some semblance of family was at that point in time was when he was gone. Yeah. I hear that a lot with, with dad, with people who grew up and their dad's off at work and not having to walk around on eggshells or feel like, you know, something's fixing to happen any second, any minute, or the dad just go nuts and go crazy with anger and rage and all the other things. How did your dad, in saying all that, how did your dad influence you as a dad and a husband? His influence on me came with pretty much doing the exact opposite of everything he ever did. I didn't even want to, I didn't want any part of it. I wanted my kids know what it was like not to be hit. I wanted my kids to know what it was like not to be cursed at, put down, pushed down. None of my kids played baseball. I didn't care. That's what saved me. That's not what saved them. My son told President Bush he wanted to be a lawyer at the age of 10 when we went out there so he could watch the movies. And he's 30, he's a lawyer. And they got to chase their dreams because I learned to do the opposite of what was done to me. And it's now, all worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Your dad, I'm taking it, probably wasn't a, a very affectionate man. Not affectionate. But here's the funny thing. He was, he would scream, curse, drink, and smoke all week. And then he would sing at church on Sunday. And you talk about mixed messages as a kid growing up. And you're either going to get smacked before or after church. It's just when. And while your dad's singing Amazing Grace up there, and you're like, this does not even seem right right now. I don't have no idea what's going on. It's like surreal. Dude, that's as a young man, that's got to be incredibly confusing and distort your view of what a man and dad and husband supposed to be, right? Absolutely. You're not living up to anything. And again, with a kid and back in the old church days with everybody doing the 10 commandments. And if you don't do this, you're going to burn. And if you don't do that, you're going to burn. And then your dad's beating you and, and you're in trouble. And, and you're just like, wow, this is how it's supposed to be. And then you grow up and go, wow, that is not how it's supposed to be at all. So that was a big awakening for me. I remember I grew up in Southern Baptist church and it was damned if you do damned if you don't. And I remember walking away as a kid going, well, I feel beat down. This sucks. <laughs> you know, yeah. You feel no worse fun. walking out of church than you did walking in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and now to the piece of him about not being affectionate, because I see this a lot with men. Um, was it hard because you didn't see a father who was affectionate? Was it then hard 
for you to be affectionate with other people? It was learned. I had to learn to hug. And I didn't want anybody to touch me. I didn't want to hug anybody. And then I'll tell you what changed me when my ex-wife had Hunter. And they put Hunter in my arms for the first time. All I could do is cry and go, who could touch a kid? And that's when the bells and whistles went off. And I was like, this is what being a dad's supposed to be. And from that point on, I was a dad, man. Yeah, holding that little baby in your arms is that, I mean, just the true miracle of God and just the whole process of birth and life is, it's, that's a game changer, isn't it? Absolutely. And I, there's so many arguments going on in our society today about we need to do this and we need to have these rights and we need to have those rights. How about doing what's right? Just do what's right. And let's move on from there. And then we can all be better people. We'll get along better. There won't be as much hate going on because there won't be as many sad people who have anger, have no reason or understanding why they're angry. And then they can get up and move on with their lives. So where did you learn to be a good dad, a good husband? Was was it through other men or was it just like you're reading or self-taught or watching people? How did you learn that? I think part of it came from athletic field. And learning that sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, and sometimes you tie. And it's according to how much work you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. The other part of that was at 15, my parents did me the biggest favor they never knew they did for me when they moved me from Miami, Florida, where they live, to Brownwood, Texas, where my grandparents live. And ironically, my father's parents that I moved in with. And so I'm expecting, okay, after you get back from school, you have to take care of your brother. You have to do all the chores. You have to have the food done. You have to have the laundry done. And I walked into my grandparents' house, I had two rules. If you do it, own it. Own it, live up to it, move on. And number two, if you always tell the truth, you don't have to remember what you said because the truth is a truth. And going from so many rules to just being responsible for me was eye-opening for me. And my grandparents taught me everything. My grandfather was a big man, had a menswear store in Brownwood, population 20,000 people. But people came from all over the country to pay the respects to a man they knew lived for other people. And he taught me how to shake hands firmly, look people in the eye, yes or no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Hold doors for people. Even when they don't want you to, you do it because it's right. You take your hat off when you walk into the building. Take your grandmother on lunch dates once a week the entire time you're in high school so you know how to treat women. Keep them inside away from traffic on the sidewalk. Take their arm crossing the street. Car doors, restaurant doors, you open those, you pull out chairs, you fold out napkins. You treat them how you want your grandmother treated. That's how you treat everybody. And that changed a lot in me. Now, it took me two years later to actually make that transition. But as a teenager, learning that when I could have gone off the rails so easily, that really helped being with my grandparents for those three years. You know, I hear this story, too, quite a bit in that when I start talking about the generational thing, you know, and what I learned in my own story is my dad couldn't give what he didn't have, right? He grew up without a father, so he was trying to figure this whole father thing out, too. What I see and hear about a a lot is there'll be a dad who's abusive or just doesn't know what he's doing, right? And he's angry and he's abusive physically, verbally, whatever. And then you start, well, what was his dad like? And a lot of times it's, it's, well, his dad, the, the people see his dad a lot differently then he sees his own dad. So for example, the grandfather comes across a lot differently, especially as they've gotten older, because in a lot of cases they've realized they messed up with their kid. They're not going to mess up with their grandkid. Was it like that you think with your grandfather? Did your dad learn some of those behaviors from him or was it just a total disconnect and he was kind of that rebel and something else happened? He was a rebel from the beginning. There was a point in time where we've done some family tree stuff lately, which I don't condone at all. Um, You don't want to know your past that far. But there was a point in time when he was a kid. My grandfather was serving in the military, and my dad killed my great-grandmother's chickens one day. And then there was some cats and then some other stuff. And he was like that from the time he was five or six years old. And... People that I talk to now, I've gone and talked to other schools where 
people who went to school with him are either principals or teachers or superintendents. And they'll talk to me before or after and they'll go, your dad just wanted to fight. He woke up looking for a fight. He went to bed looking for a fight. He'd pitch in a game so he could hit somebody so he could start a fight. He just wanted to fight. He was mad at everybody all the time. And so there is no explanation on why he did this or why he did that. He just was. And was was not very pretty. Yeah. Yeah. The, on the forgiveness piece and forgiving your father, what did, what is, did that look like for you? That took a long time in coming, man. I'm going to have to say I was late 30s before I could go. I can't get past this. This has eaten me alive. What am I going to do? And our pastor at church one day said, you don't keep that priority list that you have when you're a kid going, dad, mom, this, that, grandparents, and on down the line. You can change that priority list at any point. And so maybe dad's not two or three or four. Maybe we, he gets moved down here. You don't cut him out of your life, but you change what he means in your life so that you can move on. And then you have to forgive him. And I said, why would I forgive someone I don't want to get along with? He goes, you have to forgive him for you. And I went, what does that mean? You know, I'm, I'm like this 30 year old belligerent child because I, I, my growth got stunted because I'm getting a message from church going, Key, key, key. And then your dad's going, key, key, key. and you're like, what's this a real thing? Because of what Scott Sager had said to me, my preacher at the time, um, he let me know that it wouldn't be a one-time deal either. You're going to have to forgive him a lot. And you're going to have to pull in things. And it, there are going to be certain times in your life when another memory is going to come up. You're going to have to forgive him for that too. And it's, it's come true. And he had this saying. And when I got remarried to Shauna and he married us at the church up in Dallas, I looked at him one day and I go, why couldn't I have started here? And he said, Jimmy, you don't know how good good is till you see how bad bad can be. And that has stayed with me for 20 years. And I thought, is that not true? Because I could have folded my, my tent and gone home a long time ago, and I didn't. I just kept fighting. I didn't even know what I was fighting for. But apparently I was fighting for my kids and my wife. You know what, brother, too, the platform that God has given you, and it's easy to look back now and go, okay, yeah, I get it, <laughs> right? But the platform and just your story and everything you've been through, you know, I had a, a pastor friend of mine years ago say, yeah, years ago before I came to know the Lord, when I was working on my testimony, <laughs> <He's> <laughs> like, yeah, okay, I hear you, but, but in that, you look at everything that he's done through you and the number of people that, that he's allowed you to impact as a result of your story. So, so let's jump in to, for those that may not know the story, especially maybe for the younger generation, tell us the story about the movie and, and kind of how that whole thing came about. But, but, but back up and tell us kind of the story about you coaching at the high school level and, and how everything came together for you. Okay, I'm going to start with my next door teacher on my first day of class in 1998. She walks over, our IT teacher, to introduce herself to me. Hi, I'm so-and-so. I want to meet you. And, and by the way, I don't like you. And I was like, wow, okay. She goes, you're a coach and all you care about is winning. And I don't want anything to do with you. And I said, all right. And jump ahead to a group of kids who had won one game each year for the three years before I got there. And I had eight kids show up for baseball season. Eight is not enough. And so I finally talked two more kids into coming out and gave us 10 kids the first year. And I would love to tell your audience, hey, I told them everything there is to know about the history of baseball, how it's seen us through wars, depressions, recessions, civil unrest, everything. And guess what? That's not what I could do. Because my grandfather had this saying, you can't respect anybody else until you respect yourself first. And I had to teach those kids how to respect themselves. Not only from what they were going through at home, but what they were going through in school. Because along with that teacher, there was another teacher that came to my class one day and she goes, that kid is incorrigible. I can't do anything with that kid. And I said, you don't know what that kid went through to get out of his own house. And then you don't know what that kid went through to get from the parking lot into the school or down the hallway or in the bathroom. 
I said, you have every day is 100% a good day? Well, I'm a teacher. And I said, exactly. And what are you, what, what message are you sending? Jump ahead. I taught those kids about respect. We wore our uniforms right. We win 10 games the first year, all 10 are at home because we learned to take care of our field. And part of doing that was my whole deal is if you earn it, you respect it a whole lot more than if somebody hands it to you. And so we took care of our home. That's where people came to try to beat us. We redid the infield, the outfield, the grass, dirt, trees, batting cages. We redid everything. And those kids not want people coming on their field and embarrassing them there. And so we won every game at home. Second season at this little bitty school in West Texas, I had 63 kids come out for my baseball team. I had more kids than the football coach had. And that didn't make him happy. But he was a jerk, and I did not care. He reminded me a lot of my dad. He pulled me aside on my way to baseball practice in 1999. He got hired during Christmas of 98 after the football coach got fired. This guy gets hired to be the athletic director, head football coach, in charge of all the coaches and all the kids. Pulls me aside on my way to baseball practice tell me, you have taken these kids as far as you can. They will never amount to anything. Their parents are losers. These kids are losers. And then he put his finger in my chest. And he goes, and you, you may be one of the best baseball coaches I've ever seen, but you're always going to finish last to people like me because I know how to step on people to get to be where I want to be. And all I could think was, and they put you in charge of everybody. That's awesome. And two of my kids around the corner where I couldn't see him change it. They heard all of it. He destroyed two years of work in 90 seconds. And so where the movie opens, we lose the first two games, 15 to one and 15 to zero because it had spread through my team like wildfire before I could even get to practice. And they were right back where they were before I took the job. And so after that second game, I sent my kids down the left field line in the movie, it's the bleachers. I stood on home plate and I said a prayer and I said, what can I do to help these kids? How can I get them to dream and to think big and to not give up and to have confidence in each other and build each other up and not tear each other down? What can I do to spread that message? And the answer is clear as day goes, go down there and teach them what your grandfather taught you. So I walked down the left field line, not one kid's looking at me. I start talking about hopes and dreams and goals. 20 minutes in, the kids are looking at me, they're engaged. In the back of my mind, I'm going, your grandfather Ernest would be proud right now. He's got the kids all paying attention. And then my catcher, my 18-year-old catcher looks at me and goes, what about your dreams? I said, my dream is to watch you guys do great in the classroom, great on the field, graduate from high school, go to college, see what's out there. And you make up your own mind on where it is you want to be and what it is you want to do. Don't let anybody decide that for you. He said, we know that and we love you too, but we think you still want to play baseball. <laughs> he said, uh, nope, want to stay married. Thank you very much. At this point in time, I'd had nine surgeries. I weighed 260 pounds. Most of my kids are Hispanic. Every time we got on a school bus to go on a trip, I had homemade tortillas warm waiting on me for a coach's diet, which is awesome. And so I look like a baseball scout, not a baseball player. And but coach, we know your heart's still in it. You teach us how to act and react to every situation. We know what the other team's going to do before they do it. When you throw spatting practice, we can't hit it. And we think you still want to play. And I said, that's because you can't hit. I said, I can't pitch. At 28, I had a surgery with the doctor said, you will never, ever pitch again. He cut 85% of the muscle out of my shoulder. I can't do it. If we start winning, I said, no, I can't do that. If we win a district championship, which these kids have never been a part of a baseball championship, if we win that, you try out. For 20 more minutes, I argue with these kids about every reason I should never step back on a professional mound. And after 20 minutes, I did what every parent does, caved in. You guys win, I will find a tryout somewhere in the back of my mind. I'm thinking, this is going to be embarrassing because you're old and fat and you should be retiring from baseball. And your wife's going to kill you. So I didn't tell her. And the only people that knew were my high school kids, my eight-year-old son and my dad. When I told my dad, he said, son, even at 35, you're not very bright, are you? Way to build me up, dad. And, but that gave the kids something to play for because now when I was pushing them, they were pushing back and we made each other better. And three months later, I've forgotten about the bet. The kids are killing the baseball and we win a district championship. We come down. We're behind by two runs in the last inning. We score seven. We win after we hold that team to three outs. And I watch a group of kids celebrating something that not even they thought they could 
accomplish. And it is one of the best sights I've ever seen. It was at that point, as I'm looking out the door of the bus, watching a group of kids celebrate this accomplishment that I got, what my grandparents were trying to teach me. And this is big for dads. It's not about me. Never been about me. It's about where I can plug myself in and make somebody else better. Not about me anymore. It's about we. And what can I do to make we better? And it hit me so hard. And I went, wow. It took me until I was 35. And so now I had to tell audiences, you know what? Men are slow. I'm sorry. But eventually we will get the idea and we'll move on. But that taught me so much at that point in time. And then as the kids got on the bus, they're like, hey, we did our part, now it's your turn. I'm like, oh no. This is, I couldn't throw hard when I was young and now I gotta go throw? We eventually get knocked out of the playoffs by a kid who can't throw out of a wet paper bag because they've been facing me the whole time. I still didn't get it. I go to the tryout. The first pitch I throw without warming up is 94. Everything after that is 98. And I'm like, as a scout is telling me this, he goes, I remember back when you were in high school, you were a football star. Everybody wanted to make a picture of. I said, yes, sir. He said, Jimmy, back then you were tall and thin and through 87 or 88. I said, yes, sir. He goes, well, I don't know what you've done your time off aside from me. Thank you, sir. He goes, but your first pitch was 94. Everything after that went up to 98. And I was stunned. Those kids were hitting 98 mile an hour fastballs. And I had to call my kids and tell them. And Tampa Bay pulled me back two days later and rained so bad they had to hand me a brand new baseball every pitch, lining up to my knee in mud every time I landed, 98. And that was with my three kids and my high school kids watching. I signed a contract. And I tell people, I said, I took a pay cut from teaching to play minor league baseball. <laughs> You take a pay cut from teaching, you're poor. And um, send me to rehab camp, three weeks of the best diet I never want to be on again. I thought I was there to pitch. Apparently, there I was, I was there to train for a marathon. And they got me in shape. They sent me back. And the first place I went was double A. And this is a point where people go, what was it like playing with kids who were barely older than the kids you were coaching? It was in double A that I found out. After this game, I throw two innings. I strike out five people, 98, 99. The kids are asking me questions. We're on our way from Zebulon, North Carolina to Chattanooga, Tennessee. And the kid said next to me, he goes, you married? And I said, for now. I said, I'm not real popular right now, being away. And the kid behind him goes, you have kids? I said, I got three. Told them their names, their ages, what they like to do. This kid sitting behind this kid is looking at me. He's perplexed. And he's like, so after each kid, do you start throwing harder and I was like that is the difference between 19 and 35 right there why well, yes I did and I'm gonna have a couple more and the next day I'm in AAA the day I got to Durham I had a letter waiting on me from the next door teacher who taught IT and in her letter she said these kids love you and I'm keeping my class open for them every night so they can listen to you over the internet, and I just want you to know you have taught these kids more than any of us ever could. She goes, I get it. And with that, we became friends. And, and it was before then we became friends, too. She kind of knew that what I stood for before then. I wasn't just out for wins and what I could do for my sport. I was there for kids. And, you know, along those lines, I got a letter from a kid two years ago. And this was a kid who wore his cowboy hat and his press jeans every day to class for two years. And why did I have you for two years, John? Because he failed and I failed him. But two years ago, I get this letter and he goes, I just want you to know, had it not been for you in high school, I don't know where I would be right now. He said, every day I came into class for two years and you talked to me every single day. You asked me how I was, if I needed anything. Was I keeping up with the lessons? He goes, I now have my own oil company. I have a wife and three kids and I am a dad and a husband to the best family on the planet because of you. And I thought, and that stuff comes, I think that stuff comes from God and he's going, you need a little pick me up right now here. How's this? And that just picked me up, man. And being a dad isn't always about what you do in your family. Sometimes it's about outside the family. 
isn't it cool when God reminds you? Because there's there's times and and what it is that I do with the Father effect and stuff. It's like there's and I say this and the truthful in the sense that there's probably been a hundred times I wanted to quit. I mean, literally, because things have gotten rough or things weren't going this or we weren't at a certain level that I thought we were going to be at or should be at by now. And I pray, okay, God, just remind me that your hand's still in it. And every time it's then I get an email, like you just said, from somebody that says about the book or the movie or whatever, you just kind of go, okay, God, I hear you. (laughs) Apparently God has a different timeline than we do. Yeah, it's weird that way. (laughs) And you know what? That's the hardest prayer to pray because I pray it all the time. It's like, okay, Lord. Your will be done, not mine, and in your time, not mine. And I'm like, you just, you know, (laughs) I wish I knew your time. Give me some kind of sign or something. (laughs) That's right. And I look back at it from a baseball standpoint. I went, I didn't make it to the big leagues until I was 35 when I should have been retiring. But if he would have given me that gift when I was 19 or 20, not only would I not be the person I am, I wouldn't have made the effect on that group of kids that I made because I wouldn't have been there. He had a plan for me the whole way. And then when I made it and it wasn't about me anymore, he went, now it's your turn. And I never would have thought about baseball again. Cause that doctor said, you'll never pitch again. Why do that? And the kids challenge me and we push each other and they go to college and I play major league baseball. And here we go. So brother, tell me, are you still, because I think I saw this somewhere, at one point you were the oldest rookie to debut in the major leagues. Is that still the case? I think I was the second. I think um, oh, there was an African-American guy who, because of our screwed up country, couldn't play baseball until then. And then he came over and he was like 40. And for old white dudes, I think I have the, <laughs> I have the record. <laughs> and lefties, I'm sure the guy, other guy probably wasn't a lefty either, right? No, he wasn't a lefty. And you know what? It was just an amazing ride. And it was all because of a group of kids. Now, and you know what I saw? I saw an interesting piece. There was a connection too with like an old roommate in the farm system that, that was a producer on the movie or something. Tell me about that story. Mark Chiardi called me in AAA and he goes, I work out with Michael Eisner every day, then the president of Disney. And we saw you on 2020 while we were working out. And I called to tell you, we want to make a movie about you. And I went, click, (laughs) whatever, that's not happening. And he kept calling back. I'm like, dude, I said, I'm doing this because of a bet with my kids. I said, I'm in AAA. I'm getting to be a kid again. I'm having a great ride, I said, but in the fall, I'm going to go home and coach football and get ready for baseball season in Fort Worth at the big high school that I got hired at. And then he kept calling back, and then I called my agent, and I go, you know what? You handle this guy. And then I get called up to the big leagues, and first day is in Texas, home state, favorite ballpark, everybody I know and love, including kids I coached against, coaches have driven school buses nine hours to come to the game. Johnny Oates, the opposing manager, God rest his soul, but 150 people in the game that day that had ties to me. Amazing guy. The fourth day in the big leagues, I am in Anaheim playing the Angels, and it's on a Sunday morning, and I walk downstairs to have breakfast in the hotel. And I open the paper, the front page of the sports in the LA Times, and Bill Plaschke had written an article about me and interviewed all my kids. And there's a big picture of me on the front page of the sports page. And I shoved it back in the paper as fast as I could. And I look up and everybody's staring at me. And that's when I learned about room service. Um, But during those next four days, I got to travel around LA meeting different movie executives and stuff. And as we're walking across the grounds of Disney, Steve, my agent, he goes, what is it you want? If we're going to do this, what do you want? And I said, I want a movie about kids who everybody counts out that make it. And I said, the second thing I want is I want people who have tried and failed, but stuck with it and come back and made it. And I said, that speaks to people like me. I said, I want the whole gamut covered. And then when I walk upstairs, Michael Eisner's sitting there. And he goes, what we have envisioned is a movie about kids who are counted out. That I'm like, oh, my God, they have microphones everywhere. 
Disney is huge. And no, Mark wanted to make sure that I was with Disney and Disney was the great fit. Everybody else wanted to go, hey, we can throw an, an affair in here, do something there. Jose can say goes on your team. We can do something about the locker room. I said, that's not, that's not what this is about. I said, this is about overcoming. And then Disney hit it on the head. And then they did, they hired Dennis. And Dennis wanted the job really bad. And, you know, the, one of the best compliments I've ever gotten was from Dennis. And after we won the ESPY award, they're sending him to one party. They're sending me to another one. And he calls me back over. He hugs me. He goes, I just want you to know you've turned my career around. And I thought, man, for someone who's already made 53 movies to say that, that's pretty cool. But we hung out together while we were filming. And we hung out together when we weren't filming. And we hung out together when Disney flew us around on the Disney jet doing all the pre movie stuff and you get spoiled pretty quick and we get off a plane in Seattle and they're like, what would you like to eat? Well, I want lobster. And, and then you go to New York and you get something else and you go to Arizona and you get Mexican food and wherever we go, we got whatever food there was. And it was just, it was a lot of fun hanging out with him. But I have to tell you this because we're talking about God. There was a point in time when they, I met Jim Caviezel on a plane with his wife, one of the most beautiful couples I've ever seen. And he calls me out on the plane and he points at me. He goes, I almost got to play you. I said, dude, you're way too good looking to play me. And, and you know, two years later he played Jesus. And I thought, man, <laughs> dude, if you're, you're going to have somebody play you. It could have been Jesus playing you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's funny. Hey, and, and I got to ask you, dude, because Dennis Quaid seems just like a good dude, man, down to earth and the whole bit. And again, I'm just looking at totally from the outside. And he was in the, the um, I can only imagine movie and you hear these great stories. Uh, what was he like? Pretty good dude. Well, I will tell you this. I'll answer your question in a second, but I got to say this before it leaves my mind because I'm 56 and I get old. When I went to see, I can only imagine all I could do is cry for two hours. And then I thought about it and he played me as a kid. You know what I mean? And then the grown up. And then in that movie, he played the personification of my father, only I can't sing. And so that was a big turnaround for us but as far as being a great guy he's always treated me with great respect he's treated my wife Shauna with great respect we went to his his mom's funeral last year and that was pretty sad to see when someone that torn up and I think we were expecting like kids and families and Hollywood to show up and there just wasn't and but he means a lot to me he actually wrote the foreword for my book that's coming out in June and and we're still in contact and I'll, I'll text him and I'll be in, you know, Des Moines, Iowa doing a speech and he's in Switzerland and looking around. I'm like, great for you, dude. Awesome. Dude, <laughs> it, that is, it, it, you know what? Just the compliment that he paid you by saying you turned my career around. Wow. That is oh, incredible. That blew my socks off. I just thought, but you have no idea what you've done for me. And that's not how he was looking at it. And He's always spoken very highly of me in the press and everything else. And I just, we actually had one person go, and you know, reporters are a little cynical. And how do you know this was a miracle? And tennis goes, he was never supposed to pitch again. If you want the medical records, we can show you those. But pitching was out of the question. And he came back throwing harder with more control than he ever had. Now, if you want a miracle, someone who's not supposed to throw, throwing a hundred, that's a miracle. And I mean, he just took up for me right then and there. And it was just, it was, I had a lot of fun hanging out with him because it was a guy thing, but it was also a respect because all actors want to be athletes and all athletes want to be actors and, and everything in between. But when we weren't filming, he was playing music with his music group in downtown Austin where we filmed and I would go watch him play at night. And I would just sit there going, how do you do what you do, man? You get up at four to put makeup on, you act all day, you come home, you eat dinner, you go to the bar, you sing all night, and then you get up at four and do it again. 
but just an endless ball of energy. And we had a lot of fun together. That's awesome. Hey, as we wrap up, man, tell us about your new book. New book is 20 years in coming. I've had people from first speech I ever gave go, what has happened since then? And there has been a lot that's happened since then. And now I've got people going, this is even a better story than the first one. And I don't know about that, but there's definitely more trials. Um, quit baseball in 2001. Couldn't judge balls. Two weeks earlier, I'm in L.A. doing at Chavez Ravine doing practice with the Dodgers. And then I drive through Texas and see my kids on the way to Vero Beach for spring training. And all of a sudden, I can't judge a ball anymore. And I'd bend over to pick up a bunt and it'd be like two feet in front of the catcher. And I'm like, what am I doing? And they do it again. And the outfielder's picking it up. I'm like, what is going on? And it took a, my wife and I 10 years and over 20 surgeries to have a neurosurgeon go, you have Parkinson's. And so I had a deep brain stimulator put in and try to take the medicine. The medicine made me sick and made my stomach quit working and all that stuff. But there's been so much has happened. And with all those surgeries, doctors put you on opiates. And so I'm on opiates almost the whole time. Well, that's not quite cutting it. So let me add some vodka to that. and We'll see if I feel better, which I never did. But, you know, in my mind, I'm going, this should make me feel better. So I end up in rehab and everything has changed over three years. No drink, no the first speech, this is where the devil tests you all the time. My first speech out of rehab is two days after rehab. I go up to Minnesota and in the green room, they have every bottle of liquor known to mankind open. And they're like, have a drink. Everybody else has been drinking. And you know what? It never even fazed me. I walk right by it, breathe by it, didn't smell or anything. Just it is what it is. And I just need to be called out of my little pity party. And over the course of the next few years, I've had this, my, my group of girls praying for me. And my group of girls is from 50 to 80. <laughs> but I call them my girls because they like that. No longer have the brain stimulator on. It's been off for two years. I don't drink. Stomach issues are getting resolved. I have no signs of Parkinson's whatsoever. I don't tilt, tremor. I don't get off balance. I don't fall down. I can actually do exercises I couldn't do for a long time because I now have balance. Just because Jesus goes, I can do anything. And so the book is about that. It's about dream makers. It's about surrounding yourself with the best people possible to be the best you you can possibly be. And it goes through everything. And the really cool part is, and I had to fight for this, there's a feather on the front. And it has names and it has the title and it has Dennis down here, but in the middle is just a feather. And people are like, what is the feather for? I said, the feather is for chapter eight when you get there and when you get done, if you think the same way you do now, then I'll pray for you because this will change you. And it's just a really cool thing about when God showed up and said, you're healed. And I knew it before anybody did. And then I told my wife and she goes, you turned it off? I, I yeah. So it's about surrounding yourself with good people. My grandparents, uh, my wife, my high school kids, dream makers, people who build you up and they want to be a part of something better than what they're in. And the other side of that is dream killers, but I decided to call it dream makers. So dreammakersbook.com, but the dream killers are people like my dad, that high school coach at Reagan County, and some other people who want to see you fail. And I tell people, dream killers want to see you fail for one of two reasons. They've either tried to do something in their lives and failed at it, or they're too afraid to try. And if they can drag you down to where they are, they feel better about where it is they are, which would explain a lot of the dad's anger right now because they quit dreaming and they quit praying. Amen, brother. Hey, I want to have you back to talk about more in depth of this last 20 years. So we'll, we'll reconnect and have you back on. How can men, women reach out to you? How can they connect with you like via social media or is it just the website? Uh, website, jimtherookiemorris.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. You can look up Jim Morris. Facebook got a huge following, but I don't do much. I don't know why. I think I get caught up with life. 
And, <laughs> but I, I, I try to keep up with what I can on pertinent questions. And, you know, one of the most pertinent ones, I think, and it's been repeated over the years, was after this last speech I did, this young lady came up college age, which when you get older, college age people look like they should be in elementary school. <laughs> and so I'm looking at this girl thinking, you have not been through anything. And the first question she asked me was, how did you forgive your dad? And so that's when the aha moment went off. I went, ah, oh. I said, it's not a one-time deal. And what came out of it was you have to keep forgiving for yourself to move on. And those memories will come back. And there will be times when the devil is trying to pick on you and throw something else into the machine and go, you know what? What about this? What about that? I'll just pray it away too. I forgive him for everything. And when that little girl walked away, she smiled, but she had the weight of the world on her. And I thought, man, I hope you do that because I could tell instantly the pain that was there. Dude, that's awesome. Brother, I know you are super busy, man. And I really do greatly appreciate you taking this time to be with me today. Absolutely, John. I appreciate it. And that is it for another episode of the Father Effect Podcast. Hey, don't forget to check out the Father Effect movie. And remember to hit that subscribe button. And if you're a regular listener, would you please consider leaving us a review? The Father Effect is an outreach of The Perfect Father Ministries, Inc., which is a registered 501c3 nonprofit. Please consider a tax-deductible donation on our Patreon page or on our website at thefathereffect.com. Remember, your life is your legacy, and what you do and say every day is impacting your family and the generations to come. Thanks for listening to the Father Effect Podcast with John Finch. Please subscribe and leave a comment, too. To find out more, go to thefathereffect.com. That's thefathereffect.com.